Hello and welcome to The Week in 60 Minutes, brought to you by Spectator TV and broadcast on Thursday, October the 28th. My name is Freddie Gray, I'm the Spectator's Deputy Editor and I will be your host today. We've got a great show on for you. We'll start with the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, who has announced his budget this week. He promised to cut taxes by the end of this parliament, but also promised a lot more government spending. We'll be asking if Rishi's sums add up. Next, COVID. COVID cases have been on the rise alarmingly for quite a few weeks, and yet recent data suggests they may be tailing off. I'll ask Tim Spector if there's good news on the horizon. After that, we'll be discussing terrorism and psychosis. Rod Little and Peter Hitchens will have a mental debate. Then COP26, the big climate change summit, which starts this weekend in Glasgow. We'll be asking if these major events ever actually achieve anything, or is it all hot air? And finally, Facebook. Is the widespread call for online safety really a bid to stifle free speech? I'll be talking to the New York Times' media columnist, Ben Smith, and the equally notorious journalist, Glenn Greenwald, who's based in Brazil. Before we get going, though, please consider subscribing to The Spectator's YouTube channel. Uh, you can do that by hitting the red button at the bottom of the screen and then tapping the bell at the top to make sure you never miss an episode. And while you're at it, why not subscribe to The Spectator magazine itself? You can get 12 weeks of the magazine and a free £20 Amazon voucher for just £12. To take up the deal, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash TV offer. First up, the budget. Rishi Sunak has promised a lot more government spending, including the reinstatement of the foreign aid budget next year. He's also introduced tax cuts on universal credit. I'm joined now by Katie Balls and Kate Andrews to discuss. Katie, I saw a lot of people uh, outside the two-chairman pub last night from the Treasury Department, and they were looking jubilant. They clearly thought it was a case of job well done. Are they right to be celebrating? Yeah, it's a little bit early, I think, um, to have your budget celebration. If you think about previous budgets, ultimately, I don't think the Treasury can breathe a sigh of relief until you get past the Sunday newspapers. Um, people still going over those figures. We're hearing analysis from the IFS and others about you know, how much Rishi Sunak is really spending and what this means uh, for the country in the coming years. So it did feel slightly premature, um, to be honest. And I think particularly when if you think about it, uh, the Chancellor has just announced a range of measures, which means we are heading to the highest tax burden since the 1950s. And that's not normally something on paper that would lead to mass uh, celebrations, at least in the Tory party. Kate, there's a lot of concern about inflation uh, at the moment. And there's some thought that the Chancellor is trying to put the frighteners on the economy to a certain extent to, to calm down. Uh, the inflationary trends. Do you think he succeeded in doing that? 
I think he's being more honest about the fact that it's very difficult for him to really claim to have that power. I mean, he said on multiple occasions now over the weekend on the Today program that he doesn't have a magic wand to address what's really contributing to inflation right now, which is a global gas shortage, uh, supply chain uh, crunches and labor shortages, um, which are putting real inflationary pressure uh, on the UK economy and on the global economy. Uh, the best thing he can do is continue to hedge against inflation and as the Spectator reported back in March, that March budget and the tax rises that we saw there were really to tackle that problem, to make sure that he had, say, 20, 25 billion pounds at his disposal if inflation interest rates were to go up by even 1%, which he, he thought he, he might actually need. So I think, you know, in his best case scenario, he'll continue to try to keep that money aside if he has to pay more to service the UK's debt. Um, but in that best case scenario, uh, he doesn't have to, you know, inflation is transitory as the central banks continue to promise us it is, although that definition of transitory really does seem to be elongating. Um, and he'll be able to spend it on something else come uh, next year, maybe getting closer to an election that might look like a tax cut. But in, in the worst case scenario, he's, he's going to have to spend that money and even possibly find more. I thought it was interesting that the Office for Budget Responsibility um, said that they thought inflation would peak around 4.4% next year. I wouldn't say the chancellor played that down in the budget, but he said it would be around 4%. But what he didn't include that the OBR says is once they brought their forecast to an end, because they have to do that obviously at some point so the chancellor can compare, uh, prepare for the budget, actually the energy crisis now makes them think that the risk is to the upside and it could be around 5%. I mean, this is a huge difference from where we've been the past decade and indeed for decades when it comes to inflation. And I'm, I'm not convinced yet that the chancellor or anybody else has really explained to the public how much that's going to bite. Is the Chancellor's real problem that he's trying to be all things to all people? He wants to appeal uh, to fiscally conservative Tories um, and at the same time he's keeping the uh, government spending gun firing uh, as regularly and as hard as he can. I think that's what he's trying to do. I think that you saw that yesterday where you have Rishi Sunak announcing lots of spending measures and um, as we've touched on the effects of those are going to be wide-reaching in terms of the tax burden but then throwing in at the chamber that you know by the end of the parliament he wants to be lowering taxes not raising them and then later on uh, in a private audience of Tory MPs laying it on even uh, thicker uh, ultimately talking about how going forward um, his main goal is going to be lowering taxes and that's how he's going to look at every marginal pound. Um, do we believe him? I think there's quite a lot of scepticism amongst uh, Tory MPs because ultimately there is a bit of a running joke with ministers that every time Rishi Sunak starts to talk about how he is a low-tax Tory, it usually means he's about to do the opposite and he's trying to say, oh, I am doing this, but I don't mean to. I think in the Chancellor's defence, when we're looking at this budget, to me, the budget and the spending review are almost Boris Johnson um, events. And you could see Rishi Sunak flicking to that. He kept talking about the Prime Minister's uh, you know, ambitions when he was speaking. And I think that reflects the fact that were Rishi Sunak Prime Minister, I don't think he would be doing the level of spending that we saw um, this week. I think that is pressure coming from number 10. I think the question is, is Rishi Sunak really going to be able to turn the tide and move to lower taxes by the end of this parliament if you do have that pressure coming from number 10? And I, I think of all the strain that we're hearing about, it's not clear that he will be able to do that significantly. Kate, we, we, in the um, Osborne, Cameron, Cameron Osborne era, I should say, we got used to this idea that um, 
George Osborne, the Chancellor, was really the driving force of the government. Uh, and that seems to be the impression in the Johnson-Sunak era. Um, is it a similar dynamic? Oh, I'm not convinced it's all that similar. So I think when it comes to personal relationships, there's every indication that Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak are very friendly, they get on, and there was a lot of briefing leading up to this budget that the Chancellor was more or left less to his own devices. But there's a huge caveat there that I don't think was existing in the Cameron Osborne era for quite obvious reasons. I mean, that was an era that the government was almost proud to define as austerity. So when Osborne was trying to get the books in order, he had all the support from David Cameron. And, you know, they, they were far from perfect, but that was the goal. And, and you did see uh, the deficit coming down. What we have now is Rishi Sunak's told he can be left to his own devices with the huge caveat that he has to deliver on the prime minister's spending plans. He has to deliver on the manifesto. He has to deliver on the promises. And Boris Johnson has made some wild spending promises. We're investing in just about everything, infrastructure, the NHS, education, you name it. Boris Johnson wants money funneling into it. And he wants more day-to-day -day spending as well as more capital spend. So Rishi Sunak is walking this very fine line where he has to make his neighbor in number 10 happy. Uh, he has to show that this is not an austerity government. And he certainly did yesterday. I mean, this is not a government that is trimming anything back. But at the same time, he wants to signal to his party and also to the markets that he is going to be fiscally responsible, which is why you're not seeing him use all of the borrowing room and the windfall room that he might have otherwise done if he just really wanted to spend. And I think his language at, at the end of the speech did matter. I mean, it was very blunt. It was saying, you know, if you think it's controversial now to say government isn't the answer to everything, then it's important that I say it. I'm paraphrasing him. He said it better than I did. I think his point there was to every department, you have to stop asking me for emergency money because we may have a lot of consequences we have to tackle from COVID, but we are no longer in an emergency and getting the public finances somewhat in order is a top priority for Sunak. But as Katie says, I think on the tax stuff, that is going to be the harder argument to make. I mean, it is all good and well to say, look, I, I really don't want to be raising these taxes, which he's done many times, to tell Tory MPs behind closed doors, I'm going to do everything I can to get taxes down. But if you're the chancellor that rose tax and didn't get tax down, I mean, that is the record you're going to be judged on. So I think the pressure is actually really hyped up and it's on Rishi Sunak uh, to deliver this now. Katie, do you think that tensions are growing between the Chancellor and the Prime Minister? I think when you look at their relationship, I think it has become more strained than it was when Rishi Sunak was first appointed Chancellor. I think that's some of that, I think, is uh, inevitably what's going to happen when you have the Treasury and Downing Street. The Treasury is always going to be the, uh, the body which is effectively saying, oh, think about this, where's the money coming from? But I also think there is a, an ideological difference between Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson. I think Boris Johnson is far more relaxed about almost not having an ideology on, on the economy and, and throwing money at things. And I think the Chancellor is much more nervous. I think we could really see it at a Tory conference uh, where Rishi Sunak has been worrying for some time about inflation when he spoke to the spectator last Christmas, he spoke about his inflation fears. Um, and lots of people said, well, this is misfounded. Um, at conference, just as you have uh, lots of warnings that this really could be about to happen and get quite a bit worse, you have Boris Johnson saying that inflation fears are misfounded. Um, it feels as though they're in two very different places. And I also think that since you've seen a change of personnel in number 10, so the departure of the Vote Leave group, people like Dominic Cummings, who often uh, complimented Rishi Sunak and still do to this day in his um, very long blogs, um, I, I think the new team, uh, you know, uh, a bit more suspicious 
notice of that and therefore there's a, uh, been a bit of a break in terms of um, the relationship between the two on a personal level in terms of their teams as well. So I think that all that comes together to mean that this is not a David Cameron, George Osborne relationship. Katie, Kate, thank you very much. Thanks, Fred. Next, COVID. COVID cases have been rising alarmingly for quite a few weeks now, but the latest data from the government anyway suggests that they might be finally falling off. I'm joined by Tim Spector, who is principal investigator, as you all know, of the Zoe app. Tim, are we seeing a decline in cases or do you see something different from your information? Yeah, for once we have a a clear difference between the methods of collecting data so that the government confirmed cases, which is just based on uh, positive reported tests to the government, uh, is showing uh, about half the rate of the Zoe app and a decline over the last three days. Whereas the latest Zoe app today is showing around 93,000 new cases and a slight increase day on day, although uh, we are now showing a, a decrease in the in the increase, if you like. So it only increased a, a few thousand in the last few days. So there's a quite a big gap in the um, in the numbers, and there's also uh, it's unclear really whether we are heading for a a, a plateau and a drop, or it's still just going to keep going up. So you'd say there's no there's no cause for great optimism, but but no, no need for increased pessimism at the moment. Um, I think yeah, uh, I think it depends whether you're an optimist or a pessimist. But um, clearly, the government is is using the very much the optimistic scenario. Uh, they're using the the data from confirmed cases rather than the their own ONS survey, which hasn't come out uh, yet which will be much more similar to the Zoe survey, which reflects the real numbers of cases because many of the confirmed government cases are being missed at the moment for, for two main reasons. Uh, one is that uh, only people who have the classic symptoms are generally being tested. Uh, those with uh, flu-like symptoms that we've been reporting on the Zoe app for over six months now, which make up about 40, 45% of all cases who never get classic symptoms, uh, are not allowed a test unless they're on the Zoe app. And uh, the other reason is probably that many people now uh, are doing lateral flow tests themselves and not bothering to report that uh, to the government because that's in a way independent of the government. And that, that probably reflects the, this difference between the results. And, uh, it, and it, it, it probably even, even both of them are underestimates probably because we're not picking up on the Zoe app we're not doing asymptomatic testing routinely as well. So the numbers are really high. They're higher than any other Western country. Uh, and at the moment, it would be nice if they are going down, but I don't think there's any uh, proof that that is the case. Uh, as I understand it, you, you're a strong believer that uh, uh, immunity from the vaccines is waning uh, quite fast, but possibly faster than expected. Uh, and the booster rollout is clearly not going uh, as well as the people who want it to go are hoping. Uh, is this a crisis for the government? Well, let's put it in perspective. Vaccines really work. So and boosters really work. And people have had the vaccines and the booster are 95 percent protected. So uh, that's 
obviously good news. We got off to a great start with our vaccines in the UK, but um, it's really petered out. So we haven't really improved our overall vaccination status of the whole nation above about 67% really for a couple of months, whereas other countries have, have swiftly overtaken us. And the booster program really is struggling to keep up with the number of people that are requesting it, that are eligible. And so we're falling behind every week. So the plan is good. Um, there's no, no thing wrong with that. It's just the delivery is too slow and too complacent. And we're about the only country that's depending only on vaccines and boosters and ignoring all the other measures we could be doing to get that, that huge number of 100, you know, nearly 100,000 cases down. Should we be looking to Israel, which seems to have boosted its way out of a, uh, a big wave? We have been looking at Israel really um, for the last uh, year because they were always ahead of us in the vaccine race. But there are some similarities because they noticed quite quickly that vaccines were waning that, because they actually chose a, a, a Pfizer regime that was worse than us, that didn't give as much uh, longevity. Their vaccines started to wear off. Hospitalizations went up and infections went up very badly. And uh, only by adding in the boosters very fast did they manage to get some control back. But they're not in a great place. They've still got high hospitalization rates and they are mirroring the UK a fair bit in that uh, they haven't managed to get total vaccination rates uh, above 70% uh, of the whole population, a bit like the UK. And so they are going to keep struggling with reinfections and, uh, and outbreaks, uh, just as I think we will. Is, is there a, a mobilisation problem in that the more people sort of seem to think that vaccines aren't as effective as they were thought to be, uh, the less likely they are to get boosters? And if we go on with this and we have sort of endless boosters going on endlessly, uh, it's going to be very hard to motivate people or to get people to go and have them. Well, I think there's been a general failure of public uh, health campaigning, really. I think people are confused by these messages. And uh, there's you know, been a real silence, as far as I can see, in the last few months uh, across all media platforms of what the, the health messages are. Um, people say, get your booster, but at the same time, you know, not explaining exactly why that is, uh, explaining that, yes, we have high rates, but everyone with a vaccine is protected against death and hospitalisation much more than they, they would be if they didn't have uh, that jab. So... I think there's a failure of communication, but there's absolutely no doubt that uh, if you've you've been infected and you've been double vaccinated, or you've been a double vaccinated and have a booster, you're going to have about 95% protection uh, against this virus, which is about as good as you can get. And that really is what people should be seeing. And I think people, as as cases are high, we've got one in 58 people have COVID. People are not stupid. They're going to start. Uh, realising how important it is. And I think we'll also start seeing some changes in, in social behaviour uh, without waiting for the government to do something. This is what's happened in every other um, uh, of these uh, waves we've seen. Even before the lockdown, cases always start to come down as people actually uh, started to uh, opt for their own survival uh, and did did the right sort of thing. 
Thank you very much, Tim. Next up, terrorism. How do we talk about terrorism? In his column last week, Rod Little said that there is a certain madness in the way the media discusses terrorist acts after they've happened, depending on what the killer is or who the killer is. Peter Hitchens on The Spectator Online this week took great exception to Rod's column. He wants us to focus on mental illness and particularly on drug-induced psychosis. Peter, what was it about what Rod said that you took such great exception to? I think the thing that I didn't like was these, particularly was that he said that nobody had said at the time of the murder of Joe Cox uh, that Mayer, the killer, was, uh, was actually crazy. Uh, and I had actually gone to some lengths to point out that this was very much the case and had got in quite a bit of trouble from left-wing persons for saying so. And I think that it was an important, uh, an important point of disagreement because so much of the discussion about these events is prejudiced by the desire of various people in America, uh, gun control liberals, in this country, conservatives who see Islam as a major problem, uh, and it, among the, the Guardian reading left in this country, people who believe that there's a huge right-wing extremist problem in this country, they all want to believe that these events are fundamentally political and or religious. Uh, my view after looking at very many of them is that the, the, the real fundamental problem, the thing which has changed in our society most of all in the past 50 years, is the huge number of people who are taking various kinds of legal or illegal mind-altering drugs and the terrible effect which this has on them. And I think that's the thing which these events have in common. And what I really want to see is an inquiry into every act of violence, especially lethal violence, into the, the, the drug-taking backgrounds of the culprits, because I think it would, it, would, it would uncover something quite startling to those who think this is fundamentally political. And I thought that the, the dismissal of the, of the idea that uh, the, the mayor was actually really just off his head uh, was wrong. Rod, do you think uh, in your eagerness perhaps to uh, pin the blame on Islamism, you're overlooking the fact that all these people are just mad and possibly mad because of drugs? No, that's exactly what I said. I don't think the problem is Islamism, uh, uh, primarily. Um, what I was trying to do was tease out the nuances is between what constitutes madness and what constitutes badness, if you like. And incidentally, when I use the word nobody says, uh, as, as Peter quoted me of saying, I, I mean it in a slightly different sense to how most people mean it. I mean nobody except for Peter, me uh -huh. and Melanie Phillips. Um, uh, so it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, nobody isn't quite the finite term it is when ordinary people use it. But I, I take Peter's point, uh, uh, and and I was nudging towards that suggestion, which that uh, that uh, every single block of society has agency when a tragedy occurs and tries to insist that it is a consequence of people they don't like doing it. And the thing which I found most fascinating was. Anders Breivik in uh, Norway, where initially, of course, the uh, psychiatrist found him mad as a hatter, which is uh, uh, a derogation I would probably go along with, having looked at the case in full, though not having examined him. Um, but then this was overturned simply or primarily because the left wished to insist that the, uh, the racist politics espoused by Anders Breivik inevitably led to that kind of carnage, uh, and that therefore 
uh, it wasn't the case that he was insane. Whereas, clearly, uh, as one of the psychiatrists put it, I would uh, suggest that he was insane simply by dint of the fact that, as his psychiatrist put it, uh, his politics came along to provide a space for his psychotic behaviour rather than the other way around. Is the problem partly, uh, Rod, that I mean, our definition of mental illness now is so broad, it ranges from everything from uh, schizophrenic psychosis to just feeling a bit down, uh, that actually nobody can talk sensibly about madness and, and what drives mad people to kill people? But that's certainly true. That's certainly true. And we've also uh, uh, gone along a bit of the path that Norway has gone along with, which is to kind of exonerate mental illness to the degree that it is something which afflicts someone and that therefore the person cannot possibly be responsible. Uh, now, we have a, a slight backlash in this country with some very eminent people. I think, um, I think it's Paul Morale at, at Leeds University uh, who are positing a post-liberal uh, 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 study of insanity and suggesting that, for example, whilst mental health uh, charities will tell you that there is nothing to be feared from schizophreniacs. Uh, Paul Morale and others suggest, oh yes, there is, and the public is absolutely right to stay the hell away from them. So there is that. And yes, of course, we talk far too much about mental health. None of this, incidentally, um, uh, because it's something I didn't touch on at all, which is probably why Peter reacted. None of this uh, should uh, uh, prejudice one way or the other. Uh, Peter's excellent thesis that it's uh, drugs which are primarily to blame. It, it could well be in many cases, though not, I think, in Anders Brevik's case. Well, th this is the problem, you see. You, you don't even know that Anders Brevik was a user of steroids. Uh, it's, it's no, I knew he used steroids, but I, but, 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 but well, I, this is it's, if you're if you're suggesting that every single uh, pharmaceutical uh, appurtenance uh, is it could be a contributory factor in in. Uh, acts of extreme violence. No, I'm not then saying I that. Think you're stretching the net a little wide. Old no, child. but that's, that's a great, whopping great straw man. What, I've, what, what I'm pointing out is that the, there has been absolutely zero interest anywhere in the fact that Breivik used steroids. Uh, but if you look at a, a number of these crimes, uh, Omar Martin, the Orlando, uh, the Orlando killer, uh, or you, you look at the London Bridge killers, uh, or you look at uh, Brenton Tarrant, the man who was responsible for the mosque massacre in Christchurch in New Zealand, they're all steroid users. So it's not the argument you often get from people who say, oh, well, are you saying everybody who smokes a joint is a killer? Or everybody who takes antidepressants is a killer? Or everybody who takes steroids is a killer? No, I'm not saying that. Uh, but what I am saying is that if you come across people uh, who have crossed this extraordinarily uh, well-patrolled boundary, uh, that, that keeps most of us uh, from attacking our fellow creatures with guns, knives or bombs and have actually done it. The one thing they tend to have in common is that they have taken powerful mind-altering drugs. We don't know how much, we don't know how, how long they've done it for. The reason we don't know any of this is because nobody cares. Quite often I look at crimes which are totally irrational and I, I, I go to the police forces involved afterwards and I say, could you tell me, did you investigate uh, the culprit's drug use? Uh, and after I've taken them, in many cases, to the information commissioner, it emerges they haven't even asked. They're not interested. There is a fundamental lack of interest in our criminal justice system in this very, very important point. They don't look, they're not interested, they don't ask, they don't care. 
I should think uh, probably 99% of people who have heard of Anders Breivik have no idea uh, that he took steroids. And in fact, his revolting testament in which he makes this plain uh, is now almost unobtainable. Uh, so you can't even read it to see, but that's where it is. But in so many cases, uh, whether, whether in the terrifying number of school and college shootings in the United States, uh, or in the, the, the people who drive vehicles into crowds uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, uh, you will find over and over again, if you look, and if there's been any attempt to find out, you will find that the use of some sort of powerful psychotropic is present. So I can draw no conclusions from this because the evidence is, is, is still too thin. But I think it's incredibly irresponsible of our societies to put these to one side and say, oh, it's because there's no gun control, or, oh, it's because of Islamism, or oh, it's because he was simply mad and there's no explanation for it, rather than actually setting up what we need, which is a proper inquiry into the role of these drugs. This is new. These things are not, have not gone on throughout human history. Uh, they've begun to take place really in, in, only since the 1960s, and they are becoming increasingly common, and if we don't find a proper explanation for them, we will not stop them, and we will live with more and more of them. And that's what I get sick of, is the immediate placing of these things into, into political categories which suit the politics of the person who make it, rather than into a, a, an intelligent inquiry into what's really going on. But the, the drugs aside, uh, that's exactly what I was arguing about. Uh, well, you can't put the drugs aside, can you, in that argument? The drugs are, are absolutely central to that argument because they are no, the big, no, 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 they're no, the big no, no, change. No, no, no. Just a second, Peter. I mean, what I was objecting to was that uh, immediate categorization by both right, left, and and centre, indeed, for that matter. Uh, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a function of our times. It's a function of the internet. But, but can I so, uh, remind, remind me, what were you saying about the bow and arrow, uh, the bow and arrow event in Norway? What was I saying about? Yeah, it? what was your view of that? What were you thinking? That what were you? What were you? What, what were you turning towards? In, in... Well, again, they did exactly the opposite with the bow and arrow. What interested me about that was the fact that the authorities did the, the exact reverse of what they did in the case of Anders Breivik, which was at first say this is a terrorist attack and ascribe the blame to. Uh, uh, to, to the guy's Islamic beliefs, Islamist beliefs. And then, uh, uh, within the space of only about seven days, uh, changed tack completely and said, no, it's nothing to do with Islamism. It's to do with his mental health. Uh, he's been uh, uh, on antidepressants. He's, he's had uh, various psychotic episodes, etc., etc., etc. And they ditched Islam altogether from it. Uh, so, I mean, what do I think? I don't know, because I haven't interviewed anybody who's... Uh, it seemed to me, and indeed Brevik's father. So I know quite a lot about Anders Brevik. It seems to me that you were a bit peeved by the by the was saying, and which I wholly agree with. I'm sure he's right, which is that this is something which is never investigated, and I think the reason for that is the year which Peter cited earlier, 1960. Um, uh, and I think since 1960, our view of drugs has changed, uh, which is why we have many, many more addicts, uh, many, many more heroin addicts, as well as addicts of various other, if you wish to call them addicts. I know there's a, uh, there's a scientific difference between addiction and, uh, and uh, habitual use, um, because society as a whole has decided that drugs perhaps aren't quite as bad a thing as we thought them to be 50 to 60 years ago. And that colours the way in which we treat people who use drugs. Uh, and I would suggest that the current leniency in the courts towards drugs is also 
uh, a symptom of that. Uh, so so uh, to that degree, I agree with Peter. Well, in that case, surely we need to revise our relaxation of our views on drugs if, 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 if the damage that they're, that they're doing uh, could be as great yeah. as, as this. It's time we stopped, we stopped taking the 1960s attitude. Peter, you've, you've been bravely banging the, the drum about cannabis-induced psychosis for a long time now, and you're one of the very few people uh, with a sort of public profile that does it. Uh, and yet uh, the society's going against you. You know, we, we are moving more and more towards uh, cannabis legalisation. Do you think you've lost the fight? Oh, I, well, certainly I've lost it. Uh, I, I've spent most of my life winning debates and losing the vote. Uh, it's extraordinarily difficult to persuade people, uh, particularly to vote against something which they think gives them pleasure. And it, that, that's just the case. But the, the problem with this will be that if we ever do get to the point of legalized marijuana, advertised uh, everywhere and available in, in, in high street shops and freely on the internet, and it turns out that I'm right about the, the correlation between marijuana use and, and, and mental illness, uh, then it will be almost impossible to undo the damage. Uh, so I'd say now, in, in, just imagine me cackling from whatever uh, post-death location I find myself into. Uh, I told you so uh, when you've made this mistake. I don't know what else I could do, honestly, uh, than what I have done to point out this danger and also to point out how irreversible the, the legalization of drugs is. I have to keep saying, don't do this stupid thing. I have to keep saying... Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, and I agree with you, but I... Well, I haven't seen I haven't seen your piece demanding that the that the um, that the laws against marijuana possession should be enforced. Oh, I've, I've written, I've, I have written about that, and I've written uh, I've written about our attitudes towards drugs in general, not from the point of view of inducing psychosis in individuals, which lead to the sort of killings you're talking of, but in, in the general form that it it is another factor of what has come out of the mid sixties. Partly the mid '60s, partly partly also the, the '80s, and uh, and the, the Chicago School of Economics, partly the Frankfurt School uh, of Sociology in the '60s, that that we uh, that is it's all about self-actualization, and uh, in in short, we should be allowed to do whatever the hell we like, and tied in with that, drugs is obviously a, a huge problem. Debt is a huge problem. Uh, we had very little debt. You know, back in the in the early 1960s, uh, there was very little personal debt, uh, but also marriage, uh, divorce, children, the way we bring up children. Everything has been geared to making us uh, be able to fulfill ourselves in what to fill our boots with whatever the hell we want. And I think drugs is absolutely a part of that. And I think you're 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 right. You're you're banging on the right track, Peter. I'm sure. Next up, COP. For most of this year, the government has been hyping up the big climate change summit in Glasgow as a major event for Britain and the world. However, as this weekend approaches, there are talks of crisis. Uh, some important figures, including most importantly, perhaps President Xi of China, the world's biggest polluter, will not be there. So is the conference going to be a giant waste of time? Fraser Nelson, in his cover piece this week, says that the problem with these COP summits in general is that they present the idea of the world agreeing on something when in fact the world is very much at odds. Fraser joins me now with Peter Betts, who was the lead climate negotiator for the United Kingdom and the European Union. 
Fraser, in your cover article, you suggest that COP may well turn out to be a flop uh, and that all the talk is largely hot air. Well, we've had um, several, in fact, 26 of these COP summits, and they have not tended to be the real turning points in the climate debate. We've had a few. Kyoto 97 was big. The Paris Agreement was quite big as well. But most of the COPs end up without really much anybody being much further forward. They also tend to be events where you come up with verbal formulae, which on inspection don't really tend to mean anything. Now, Boris Johnson's original conceit was to make this one of the um, you know, Kyoto Paris leaks. He wanted Glasgow to follow in that, um, in that line of, of big COP summits by getting people to agree to 1.5 um, degrees warming um, by 2050 rather than bet- somewhere between 1.5 and 2. In other words, to go a little bit further than Paris. So the, the Paris people would basically come with far bigger, harder, firmer declarations. But it doesn't look like that's going to happen now. For a start, China hasn't, um, isn't, Xi Jinping isn't turning up. He hasn't been anywhere since um, COVID broke out. Vladimir Putin, who's quite the energy broker in now Europe, he's got a new pipeline willing to um, give gas to um, Germany in the next few weeks. He isn't turning up either. And without major concessions from China, you're not really going to get a clear 1.5% degree promise. So it's not clear what, if anything, COP is going to achieve. I mean, there'll be plenty of discussions, there'll be plenty of joint communiques where people agree to do this and that by 2030 or 2050. Um, Britain and India are going to agree some solar initiatives, for example. So there'll be plenty going on. But when history looks back at the Glasgow summit, it's far from clear now that there will be anything really significant to say. Peter, you've been um, lead climate negotiator for the United Kingdom and for the European Union. Uh, I'm assuming you disagree with Fraser's analysis. Yeah, I, I, I do. I do disagree with it, Freddie. Um, so, you know, this this COP is a very different COP to the one we had in Paris six years ago. So the goal of Paris is to get countries to ramp up their emission reduction plans, in particular for the year 2030. Um, how are we doing on that? Well, uh, we've got commitments at the very top end of what we thought from a bunch of big developed countries, uh, except Australia, but also from countries like South Africa, Colombia, Argentina, and lots of the smaller countries. As, as, as Fraser said, we're still waiting for China, India, and Saudi Arabia. The fact that, that some of their leaders are not there, some of them will be, doesn't mean that the pressure should be off those countries to deliver ambitious redu- reduction pledges for 2030. So we need to see what they deliver. If you actually look at what those those pledges would deliver, if you know if they're implemented, uh, they're they're clearly not nearly enough uh, to close the gap to one point five degrees, but they're not nothing. Um, you know, the, the the United Nations Environment Program produces an annual report, which came out earlier this week. That, that, that had said that broadly the pledges made at the time of Paris might put the world on track for something like three degrees. They're now saying that the new pledges might put the world on track for something more like 2.6 or 2.7 degrees. That's, that's a big improvement. Not enough, but it's a big improvement. They also say, uh, and you might think this is more tentative, but uh, they also say that if those mid-century net zero pledges that Fraser referred to were delivered, that might be, mean the world is on a trajectory of something like 2.2 degrees. 
So I, I sort of slightly worry that Fraser, much as I'm a big fan of, of the magazine and of Fraser, is sort of slightly falling into the Greta Thunberg trap of saying that, you know, because we haven't achieved everything, we've achieved nothing. Fraser, how do you respond to the Greta Thunberg, you are Greta Thunberg allegation? Not a woman I'm very often compared to. Um, but uh, the thing, but, but my, my point here is not that progress isn't being made. I'm actually a big optimist when it comes to the sheer speed of, of green technology, of renewable energy. It's coming down at an incredible rate. If you look at the, the cost of wind power now, way lower than we thought it would be 10 years ago. There is a fascinating paper um, from Oxford I mentioned in my cover piece that suggests that we're all fundamentally underestimating just how fast the new technology is going to be. And in fact, we might hit net zero in 25 years and save millions and billions of, of pounds in the process because the new technology will simply be so much more cheaper and more efficient than the old fossil fuel. Now, I regard that as, as plausible. It's not, not saying likely, but it's plausible. Um, but I think that the real progress doesn't tend to come at these summits. You see, this, the summits give you this kind of fake theatre that for putting pressure on companies, forcing them to countries, forcing them to do this, forcing them to do that. That really isn't the way it works. I mean, countries move at their own pace because ultimately democratic leaders are not really in a position to go to Glasgow and say, OK, you've persuaded me, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Even Joe Biden, if you look at his, he says he's going to be there with bells on. He's promising that he's going to cut America's emissions by 50% from 2005 levels. That's twice the, um, uh, the speed set by Barack Obama. But even Biden can't get that through Congress right now because as president, he, he struggles to get legislation passed, as do quite a lot of leaders. You've got the um, Australia, for example, is given a superficial 2050 commitment, but no plan at all about how you're going to get there. Um, it's Prime Minister Scott Morrison jokes that he'll do it the Australian way, whatever that might be. And China hasn't said nothing. China's given us quite a clear idea. It surprised everybody last month when out of the blue and nothing to do with COP, it said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to keep our coal fires burning. I mean, coal, easily the dirtiest fuel, uh, powers most of Chinese fuel. We're going to keep this going for, until, for the rest of the decade. And then we're going to increase our carbon footprint and then we're going to hit net zero in 2060, 10 years after Boris Johnson's deadline, and Russia saying the same, Saudi Arabia saying the same. So we are seeing progress all the time, but it's just simply not bookended by these COP summits. The COP summits are little acts of theatre where they might agree to do things, but Paris was effectively toothless. Paris was a whole set of agreements, but it wasn't, they weren't binding on anybody. Um, and that, so right now, I think we need to separate what is happening. I think I'm, we're, we're seeing good news in the environment pretty much every day. Britain's carbon emissions, for example, are now down to Victorian levels. We're making incredible progress and faster progress than any other developed country in the last 10 years. But we're not doing that because somebody forced us to at a climate summit. We're doing this because consumers capitalism, innovation, those are the engines that are making this uh, planet a cleaner and greener one. Peter, I'll let you come back on that. Thanks. Thanks, Freddie. So maybe maybe three points. Uh, firstly, you know, like Fraser, I'm, you know, a relative optimist about the transition. I think it is going to happen. I think it's accelerating and it's driven a lot by business and technological development. Fully agree. But that development hasn't come about by accident. It's come about in part because it's been driven by subsidy and regulation. So if you look at you know, what's happening in India, you know, in India, as in many parts of the world, um, fossil, uh, renewable energy now cheaper than, than, than fossil fuels uh, in most circumstances. But 
the reason that's taking off is because it's cheaper. And the reason it's cheaper is because, you know, Europe and elsewhere invested really heavily in renewable energy to, to scale it up, to get the cost down. And they did that because they set they set regulations and they they entered into a commitment in a multilateral context, you know, where they felt some confidence misplaced, as it turned out, I would acknowledge that other countries and competitor countries would also act. And, you know, I talked to a lot of senior business and I think I fully agree with Fraser that they get this and they're thinking about how they deliver. But most of the businesses I do are very clear that they see a strong continuing role for government to set the frameworks, standards, funding innovation, funding infrastructure. Uh, you know, if, if we're going to do this, solve this problem, you know, by 2030, so nearly getting on for 90% of emissions are going to come from the emerging economies. A lot of those emerging economies are state-run economies. You know, you've, you, you need government action uh, to, to drive them. Second point I would make is, you know, again, I agree with Fraser, you don't bully countries at, at, at a COP or a summit interacting. You have to find arguments that resonate with them. You know, I think there is an active debate in China. People who understand China better than I do tell me this. You know, there are reasons for China to, you know, as it were, do the right thing. You know, they, they, they are very vulnerable to climate change. Secondly, they, they really want to move up the value chain. Their entire economic strategy is about capturing new markets, new industries, and things like electric vehicles. They can steal a march on Germany. They never catch up with Germany on internal combustion engines. They can on this, these new technologies. And thirdly, I think they do care a bit about their reputation, particularly in the developing world, you know, where you know, they've, you know, they've, they've had a few reputational issues, let's put it like that. And you know they care what developing countries think because they want their votes in the UN and they want their resources. So, and then there are there are other elements in China pushing back against acting state-owned enterprises, people worried about energy security, and that is playing out. And I fully agree with Fraser that we need a much more ambitious uh, trajectory for China in twenty for, for the next 10, 15 years than we've got at the moment. But I think their twenty sixty goal is highly significant. And the fact that it's set by Xi means that, you know, from what I'm told, it's already starting to impact on the system. Not fast enough, um, not enough, but it is impacting on major economic decision-making in China, or it's starting to. Fraser Lato, I'd just like to ask you about the politics of this. It seems to me that Boris Johnson might be brilliantly uh, undermining expectations about this uh, summit. And that in the end, a bit like the Olympics, which has some similarities to COP, uh, it'll end up being sort of all right on the night and everyone will think it's not quite the disaster that it seems to be in the newspapers at the moment. Do you think that might happen? It's tempting to think that Boris will come up trumps in the end because that tends to be his history as a politician. He looks as if he's flailing around. He's not going to make it. But at the last minute, he seizes victory from the jaws of defeat. Uh, this time around, it really is difficult. I mean... Let's face it, China is the problem here. If China's growth had tracked Africa's growth from 1990, there would be nowhere near as much of a climate problem. The concentration of CO2 is to a large extent because Chinese are simply not poor in the way that they once were. They're now living a lot more like us, and they intend to do so. India, there's 115 million people below the poverty line and extreme poverty. India wants fewer of those people, so they're going to keep going. And there's nothing you can really do at a climate summit to, to change those parameters. Um, now, what we can probably expect of this is a, is a form of words in these summits. There are basically, there is drama, 
there is, it hails to be a great agreement and quite often is written up as a great breakthrough. But when you boil it down and look at the commitments, what do they actually mean? Has anything really moved on? And it's the same not just for the COP26 summits, but ball summits, the G8 summit. Um, I remember at the G8 summit at Glen Eagles, uh, Gordon Brown came up with this, this great fake figure of a trillion pounds they're going to give to the um, developing world or something like that. It turns out the figure was completely fake, put together in some way or another. That's what these summits do. And this is, which is why I don't think that it's right to see the history of environmentalism as being bookended by these COP summits. Um, Oxford's Dieter Helm was at the um, Spectator's Climate Summit on uh, Monday. He made the very good point that since Kyoto, you've had a golden age of, uh, of fossil fuels, not environmentalism. You've had an absolute surge. Look at Obama. He increased significantly America's fossil fuel production because they discovered fracking technology and thought this clean and cheap gas would be um, too good an opportunity to waste. So those are the kind of things that really... Um, tilt the environmental direction. It wouldn't surprise me at all if Boris Johnson does come up with a triumphant form of words. And he might say, as they're already saying, look, look, look right, when we started this system, the countries who signed up to Net 50 agreements spoke for 30% of the world's economy. Now it's 80%. That is the, ra- the main kind of boast, if you like. So if there's nothing better to say than that, then we won't have made much progress. But also remember, Freddie, COP26 is a two-week summit and Britain's chairmanship is one long year. So don't think we're going to be done with this in just a few days. <laughs> we better wrap it up there. But uh, Peter and Fraser, thank you very much. Great. Thanks very much. Lastly, we move on to Facebook. This week, Francis Haugen, a former Facebook employee, has been talking to MPs in London about online harm. But is something more nefarious afoot? Is this a grave threat to free speech? I'm joined now by Ben Smith, the New York Times media columnist, and Glenn Greenwald, the journalist who's based in Brazil. Ben, I'll start with you. In your column, uh, last column, you described Frances Haugen as a power player. As far as I can see it, she's not exactly a whistleblower in the normal sense of the word, even though everybody's calling her a whistleblower. Did I? Yikes. Um, uh, You know, I guess I think she is actually a fairly traditional whistleblower. She's somebody who works inside a big institution who didn't like what she saw and went to um, to the government and the media. Also taking with her a huge trove of documents. Um, You know, I do think there is a for a lot of people in that position, there's basically a choice that I know Glenn has, you know, it's a difficult choice, actually, of do you, you know, do you stay secret, in which case the only people who know you who you are are your enemies, which is to say the people you used to work for, or do you become public, either because you like the idea of being a public figure and an advocate, or because it provides a kind of protection and makes it harder for your former employer to go after you, but also makes you a target and potentially, and and turns you into sort of a line of attack and a distraction potentially from the documents and from what you you leaked. And, you know, I do think there's this sort of question of, and I think the journal didn't really write much about Haugen. Her point of view wasn't particularly reflected in their articles. Like they took the, you know, they looked at the documents, they took their own line on them um, and didn't kind of filter them through her lens, which I think is basically appropriate. But, and she has a kind of a, eccentric lens. I mean, that's the wrong word, but like not a conventional set of views. She's against encryption. She's for certain kinds. She, she has a lot of thoughts about algorithms. She doesn't have a, 
a, a sort of set of views that fits neatly into the political landscape. You're being very fair there, but she was at some point her her cause, her whistleblowing was taken over by uh, a communication firm run by Bill Burton, who's a uh, former uh, deputy White House press, press secretary under Obama. Um, there's a there is a politicized agenda behind um, her press campaign, and it's become coordinated with lots of different other magazines now, hasn't it? Magazines? I don't think there's a large magazine conspiracy here. No, I, I mean, what she, I'm saying she is at some point in September, which is to say, so she, she went to a firm called Whistleblower Aid, which is a nonprofit law firm that helped her through, and that she worked with, I think, through much of the year. So she, and by which point she'd given the Wall Street Journal all these documents. And the journal, most I think to me, like the most, there's been a lot of interesting writing about these documents, but the journals is, I mean, they had a lot of time with them, and it's really the definitive stuff. Um, and And so, and then come... I guess mid-September, so after all that's done, and, and just as she was about to go on 60 Minutes, she hired a fancy PR firm, but, and, and, and there is now a kind of swirl of conspiracy around her fancy PR firm, but I don't know, if I was a whistleblower who was about to go on 60 Minutes, I'd probably hire a fancy PR firm to help me prepare. Like, I don't think there was... I don't know. And, and, and yeah, I, I mean, I, having dug into it a bit, I, I, there was less of that than I expected, honestly. What I meant by the other media titles is that she just got, other media titles got involved with it. Well, she, offered, I mean, there was a huge, I mean, she has this huge trove of documents. She'd given them exclusively to the journal. Everybody else wanted them. You know, she had a point of view on who she wanted to have them and how she, you know, and I think there is, again, like always a question of, do you just dump them all on the internet for interpretation, misinterpretation? You know, they're full of unredacted names of random individuals who work for Facebook. Do you give them to a reporter who will interpret them? I think she's trying to find some kind of middle ground where she gives them to a lot of reporters who will interpret them. So, which I don't think it's been, like, perfectly executed, but I don't think it's that interesting. Glenn, you know a fair bit about whistleblowing. Uh, what do you think about this story? And what do you think about Whistleblower Aid, which is a group that is funded by your old boss, yeah, I think the question of whether she's a whistleblower is a little bit of a semantic distraction. I largely agree with Ben that she did take documents without authorization from a powerful corporation and brought them to the media for public reporting because she believed the public had the right to know. In that sense, I think she falls at least into a very broadly defined range of what whistleblowing is. Generally, whistleblowing by its definition means you're blowing the whistle on wrongdoing or corruption. And that's where I think the question is interesting. I'm not, I don't think that the document she revealed told us very much about Facebook we didn't already know. There has been reporting on almost all of this, as opposed to say what Edward Snowden revealed, which basically nobody knew, or Chelsea Manning, which basically nobody knew. Most of what she, these documents are revealing are things that have been alleged about Facebook or even demonstrated about Facebook for a long time, I think what's more interesting is how she's being weaponized. And the central storyline of her emergence is really not these documents, but her wide range of opinions, some of which Ben alluded to. She's against encryption. She doesn't think Facebook should be uh, smashed or broken up under antitrust laws. She obviously does believe, though, there's insufficient amounts of censorship or content moderation, whatever you want to call it. And that's where I do think that the groups that are working with her come into play because it, the context for all of this is that the Democratic Party since 2016 blamed Facebook for their loss to Trump, 
they have blamed Facebook over the last four years for the emergence of right-wing uh, ideologues and polemicists and for giving them a platform. They obviously are agitating for greater censorship of them. And so the fact that she's working, for example, with this whistleblower aid group, which is funded in part by Pierre Omidyar, the former, uh, my former publisher at The Intercept, um, who has a lot of strong opinions about the need for greater content moderation. And Whistleblower Aid itself is founded by Mark Zaid, who kind of became this social media celebrity by spending four years just publishing standard anti-Trump resistance direct on Twitter. And it's a very odd kind of label for this organization claiming they're in defense of whistleblowers since Mark Zaid was one of the primary and still is critics of both Julian Assange and Edward Snowden believes that both should be imprisoned for decades, a really weird whistleblower advocate. He seems much more interested in whistleblowers when they advanced a certain agenda. So that I think is what matters is how she's being exploited. She's in London to talk about a bill that may impose criminal penalties on social media companies that allow content that governments or whoever believe is harmful or foul in the words of Boris Johnson. There's a clear agenda going on that in part she agrees with, but I think in part she's being exploited to advance. And the, the agenda seems to be pushed quite happily by, let's call it legacy media, you know, traditional media. Um, is this just a sort of uh, resentment among uh, our industry for what Facebook is doing to us? I don't think it's just that. I mean, obviously, Facebook is a huge competitor to the largest corporate media outlets, but also to small newspapers. Small newspapers are dying across the United States in large part because Google and Facebook have taken all the ad revenue that once sustained them. So this competition is very real. I think though there's on the level of national media, an ideological war going on for who, I mean, the Facebook is one of the most potent instruments ever devised for controlling the dissemination of information around the world. There are 2 billion users or however many are, are, are is the accurate count. It has incredible influence as, do, as does Google's YouTube on the politics of numerous geostrategically critical countries. And I think what's going on is a war over who gets to wield that power. Do we leave that power in the hands of Mark Zuckerberg and Google executives to decide what can and can't be heard on the internet? Or do we allow tech reporters at the New York Times and disinformation units of NBC News to pressure these companies to censor more in accordance with their ideology? Or do we allow the Democratic Party, as they're doing, to explicitly threaten these companies and if they don't start censoring more, they'll be subjected to regulatory and legal reprisals, or even in the UK and Canada where they're being threatened with criminal prosecution if they don't censor more. I think that's really what the key context here is, is that Facebook is, and Google are uniquely powerful weapons of information. And there's a war going on currently over who gets to decide how those weapons are utilized. Um, so I, I hesitate to pick a fight, an argument with Glenn Greenwald, because not only will I lose, but he will never let it go and will be will be owning me on Twitter for, for years to come. Um, but I, I think that he oversimplified this in various ways. One is that the you know, as, I totally agree that Francis Haugen's um, revelations were not on an order of magnitude of Edward Snowden's weren't. But but I also think that 
you know, what exactly is new is complicated. A lot of the things that Snowden revealed were in some ways known. There had been earlier whistleblowers. You had been writing about them, Glenn. That's why he found you. Not everything, not a lot of the worst details, but sometimes a, a new massively causes something to break into the public consciousness and the legislative cons- consciousness, even though p- bits and pieces of it were previously known. And so, I, and I think that that's true here, the, that I told, she couldn't, there wasn't some massive new revelation, but for instance, the kind of detailed internal conversations about what happened after they switched to this metric called meaningful social engagement, what the internal arguments were, what the trade-offs were, how they you, you know, what the internal recommendations they took and ignored were, was really new and was interesting, I thought. And, and wasn't, it was sort of the, the, the technical mechanics of stuff that you could see from the outside. Um, so I think that was new. And then I think, I guess I don't really think the word censorship is the right word here. There is real censorship. Trump was, del- you know, Trump's account was suspended. That's censorship, clearly. But I don't think a choice... Facebook banned the linking to the New York Post article or Twitter banned yeah. it and Facebook suppressed yeah, that's, that, 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 that sure. Censorship seems like a good word for that. But whether you show my whether whether you actively display content, say, well, I mean, I, I I'm going to post that the vaccine puts magnets in your body and and causes you to get magnetized. I kind of think I should probably be allowed to post that on my personal Facebook page. The choice of whether to distribute that to your grandmother or not is a complicated choice, and whether you do it or not, it's not sent to a stranger who doesn't follow me. Just because lots, lots of people argue with me, I post something and say, and lots of people argue with me, Facebook then chooses to display it to my grandmother, to your grandmother, who has no connection to me. I don't think it's calling for censorship to say, hey, don't display that to Glenn's grandmother. It is calling for not amplifying, for muting or downplaying certain kinds of information. It's an argument about distribution, but I don't think censorship's the right word for that. Like Facebook's making an active decision to display insane and sane and wonderful things and bad things and the dress, which I published at BuzzFeed, was wonderful, to lots and lots of people who didn't actually sign up and ask for that thing, right? So I don't think it's censorship to not. Ben, it's quite odd, is it not, that it, it is always Facebook at these sort of governmental inquiries. It's always Facebook that is in the, the sites of governments. I think if the spectator was as powerful as Facebook, lots of people would care about the well, spectator. Yes, but there's other, there's other... Yeah, except, except, I mean, probably the most powerful company um is is not even facebook but google and there seems to be a lot less attention on on them um i mean they're more powerful i think in enormous ways including what you end up finding on the internet obviously they control youtube which is a, a gigantic platform there was just a really interesting article today in the new york times on scientists who are mapping out the brains of fruit flies and in order to do that they need to rely on google's artificial intelligence scientists which Google basically has a virtual monopoly on um, and very few people know even what it is that they're doing. I think Google's probably the most powerful company ever in existence. So I think it is interesting that there is so much attention on Facebook. And I think part of that is sometimes just kind of a little bit of a coincidence that there was this person from Facebook. Maybe if there was from Google, we'd be talking about Google instead. But I think Facebook has become more of a lightning rod because and this often gets lost, is most of these tech executives, these founders of companies like Jack Dorsey and and certainly Mark Zuckerberg, when they began, their vision was never that they would be involved in censorship fights or content moderation or whatever you want to call it. Obviously, why would they want that? They wanted as many people on their platforms as possible. They didn't want to be in the process, in the habit of kicking people off. But beyond that, they have they came from this kind of libertarian ideology. I mean, if you read kind of the triumphalist, euphoric 
essays about the power of the internet in the mid nineties and into the aughts, it was very much this idea that it would empower human beings to communicate without the interference of centralized corporate and state control. That was the ideology that they grew out of. And a lot of this censorship that these companies now practice are the byproduct of the fact that they're receiving tons of external pressure from corporate media outlets, from Democratic Party, from there's various- such, There's such naivete to say that what's happening on Facebook is communication without corporate or state control. when in fact, you have a highly centralized corporation making decisions about what gets distributed. No, I think it's it, no, more but exactly, a, reali- no, a realization it, that, that, I know, that there's but, always that control. I know, but, no, but, but, but when they began, there was none. And when Twitter began, well, they were there was none. And when Google actually started, their idea was we'll never tinker with the algorithms. And the reason this happened, if you go and talk to people like Jack Dorsey or Mark Zuckerberg, is they'll say, we this obligation was foisted upon us by a society that told us that if we don't undertake this responsibility to police the internet responsibly, that the results of free speech and the blood that it sheds will be on our hands. Well, they and also they're clearly, they're, ben, ben, there, there clearly role. is a very aggressive and coordinated campaign to pressure these companies to censor more. Democratic members of Congress have summoned these tech executives four times in the last 12 months to be interrogated before them. And each time they say to them explicitly, our problem with you is not that you're censoring too much, it's that you're not censoring enough. And if you don't start getting more hate speech and disinformation as we understand it, off of your platforms, you're going to pay a price legally and, and in terms of regulation. That is the conflict explicitly being undertaken. I mean, I think I agree with you on the motivations around kind of the post-Trump freak out and seeing Facebook as the sole reason or Russia in there, there kind of. But I also think that there was a shift from like no one is there is no call to censor my texts with you, even if we are fomenting, if, even if I'm texting you disinformation, because there's an understanding that like that, that's a passive medium that AT&T is providing us to text. There, the, Facebook, when it was displaying things in a reverse chronological feed from your friends, was a different company than when Facebook was choosing which content to distribute and, and, and spread widely and which not. And once they are making those choices, it seems totally reasonable for lots of different people to have opinions on the choices that they're making. It's not passive. It's not neutral. There's no, there's no neutral space where they're just saying, well, we're just throwing it all out there and whatever wins, wins. It's all active choices. And so I don't see why lots of people shouldn't have opinions on those choices that they're making about what to publish and what to distribute. Right. So I, let me just, I think this is the key. I totally agree that this distinction that Ben is drawing between passive permission to users to publish whatever they want and active decisions to algorithmically promote or suppress things is a critical distinction. Once they get into the role of algorithmically promoting or suppressing, they're really kind of like a, a publisher, like the New York Times, actually. And Ben is right. Once you start making those choices, you can be criticized. Like people criticize the New York Times all the time for stuff that they choose to publish or withhold. The difference, though, is if the Democratic Party started dragging, you know, executive editors and senior Imagine editors of the New York Times before the Congress executives. to say, you better stop publishing op-eds like this or we're going to be punishing you legally. People would understand that's really menacing. So it, if I, what Facebook I, and Google do are doing is similar, that we should see the same danger there. I think it is dangerous and menacing. I think also... Remember the phrase, what was it, vast cultural wasteland? Television executives were always getting dragged in front of Congress to get yelled at about the garbage they were spreading. 
that's long. I mean, you know, that's 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 most of the second half of the 20th century. I mean, I don't think yeah, that's... And, 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 pressure, and, 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 and people reacted to that very poorly. Like part, the of the reason to, part of the reason there is television news, love it or hate it, that is fat, tries to be factual and fair is because they were under all this pressure from Congress and from citizens, not just to provide entertaining garbage. I mean, like, that was that's that's the history of the television industry. This isn't some, like, radical new twist. No, exactly. I agree that... If, de- if the Democratic Party was saying my opinion about Facebook is it permits too much right wing opinion to be heard that it makes Ben Shapiro be able to reach 5 million people and that seems bad, I'd have no problem with that. When you start saying, if you continue to allow Ben P- Shapiro to be heard on your platform, we're gonna pass laws or enact regulations designed to punish you in, in retaliation for allowing ideas that we dislike to be heard, then it becomes an entirely different type of, of of reaction you move from critique to state control and there's actually you know supreme court cases that say obviously the first amendment bars the congress from directly censoring right congress couldn't pass a law that said facebook is hereby prohibited from allowing any pro republican party content on their platform but there's case law where state officials in the past have kind of coerced or implicitly threatened bookstores or other book distributors to say, if you continue to allow these books that we think are too risque to be available in the bookstore, you're going to have a lot of problems with their zoning commission. And state, you know, Supreme Court has said, once you start doing that kind of coercion, you really get into a realm where it becomes more like the kind of direct censorship the First Amendment prohibits. Ben, just to say, I, I, mean, I can listen to you both argue about free speech all along, but I know Ben's got to go. Ben, I'll let you have the last word, then I think we better wrap it up. Oh, wow, the last word. I mean, I, th- I guess I, I agree with a lot of what Ben saying, what Glenn is saying. I think there's a ton of danger here when the government's involved in, in speech. I just think that, and I guess in some ways it's easier to t- for me to talk about the vaccines and stuff than about politics because I think there's less space for legitimate disagreement. And I think the question, which I think is actually hard to answer, is, you know, how many cops would have marched on New York City Hall yesterday denouncing vaccines without Facebook, Right. I'm not really sure. I actually don't. I think that that's a really interesting question. But I think probably some that there probably is some effect on something that is just obviously making society like just an obvious social ill that I think it's reasonable for legislators to think about, you know, how can you improve public health by getting people vaccinated and not have people spread lies about vaccines? That doesn't seem crazy to me. I totally agree. It's a foot on a slippery slope and all sorts of other crazy stuff. But I don't know. I I don't think it's that simple. Glenn and Ben, thank you very much indeed. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. And to repeat, you do that by hitting the button at the bottom of the screen and then clicking the bell to get a reminder every time so you don't miss an episode. That's all for now. Thank you very much. Do tune in next week and hope you enjoyed it. (laughs) 